Is it time for the arts in Australia to not merely survive but thrive? We hope so. Joining us tonight, we have Wesley Enoch. Wesley, of course, is a friend of the program. Uh, he's a playwright, artistic director and the Indigenous Chair of the uh, Creative Industries with QUT. And it should be noted that Wesley was also on Labor's 15-person National Cultural Policy Advisory Panel who helped inform this policy. Wesley joins us from Mianjin, otherwise known as Brisbane, and speaking of Mianjin, we have the publication's erudite editor with us in Esther Anatolitis. You might recall we had a chat last year when she took over the role from uh, my revered colleague, Jonathan Green. Wesley, let's start with you. The whole policy has been framed by government in terms of recognising and respecting the place of First Nations story at the centre of Australia's arts and culture. I mean, that's, that, that is an astonishing achievement, is it not? Oh, yeah, good evening there, Philip. I think, you know, it shouldn't be astonishing in this day and age. When you think back, I remember, as you are saying, you know, the, the, when the Keating launch happened of Creative Nation, there was Bangara, you know, absolutely centre stage with that launch. And the sense that after 30 years, Indigenous arts is absolutely at the forefront of a lot of our thinking. And when we're even talking about the voice, I, I often like to say this thing of, yes, we'll need a voice to parliament, but arts and culture have become the voice to the people. It's the way our stories get told through film and television, through theatre and dance and music. And that First Nations storytelling have led the kind of political changes that we've seen over the last 50 years, really. And these last 30 years, I just go, yep, it's about time. And I think, too, that I like to say this thing about First Nations ambitions are actually being hamstrung by not having enough resources. And what this uh, cultural policy has been looking at is saying, how do we inject some more of the resources in a self-determined way so that First Nations people can actually undertake the big ambitious work of being the storytellers of the nation as well? I vividly remember the first meeting of Goffs Australia Council. Mm. And sitting opposite me was Wanjuk Marika, who was the yeah. head of the Aboriginal Arts Board, one of the most impressive people I've ever encountered. And I'm pleased to see a First Nations-led board will be yeah. created under the new policy. Well, it's interesting that, th as you're saying, these boards were there but they got done away with, you know, a few years ago now. And the idea of returning a First Nations board to look after not just the protection of cultural values. I mean, there's been a lot of conversation around fake art and uh, especially the the very extractive kind of properties of, of the tourism art market. Not just the protection, but about this investing in ways of, of thinking big, just, just as a kind of way of thinking about this. A lot of First Nations arts companies, their annual turnover is basically the size of one project for a major theatre company. And you just get this thing of it being out of whack because First Nations artistic ambition is coming a little late in terms of the investment modelling that, that government has had in the arts. And those things that were invested in 50 years ago are now flourishing as large organisations, but First Nations don't seem to have got it. Looking at the fine print, it's interesting to see that the resale royalty scheme is yeah. going to be enhanced. Can you explain what it does? Well, this notion that if um, an initial sale of a piece of art, let's say it's for $1,000, is great, but let's say that 
that uh, person who's bought that then resells that for $10,000, the initial artist doesn't get much of that money at all. The resale royalties is really about making sure that the uh, capital appreciation of that work or the resale of that work, that the initial artist gets some recompense for that. And I think that's brilliant because a lot of First Nations artists find themselves from the primary market to the secondary market losing out on the kind of financial returns. There's been calls for as long as I can remember for a national Indigenous theatre yeah. company, Wesley. Any yes. money for that? Uh, well, there's still some fine-tuning. And, and what we need to do is question this notion of what a Western view of company is. And I think even on this program, Philip, we've had this conversation about think of it as a bucket of resources that freelance artists, small companies, large companies can actually engage with to look at how they might grow. And, and in many ways, there's a, a program called the Major Festivals Initiative, where it's about bringing together a whole range of investors, if you like, to help support big, ambitious works. It's not about having a single company, but it's actually having a mechanism that means that, in this case, theatre, but also dance, that works of scale can grow and actually tour the country more often so that we get not just a single vision like, say, Bangara, but we might have several shows of that scale moving around the country at any one time. And I think that's fantastic. And also internationally, because I think we're about to take that big international step if we get the right investment. Wesley, the uh, policy notes there's an ongoing problem of training and skills shortage yeah. in First Nations art jobs, and it lists that so many of them, technical and administrative position, curators, lighting technicians. There's a big job to be done. Yeah, and integrated too. I mean, I think a lot of First Nations people have, by our very nature, it's a just-in-time kind of education model. You go, I'm interested in something, I get the skills just in time to use them. And how we need to integrate that through apprenticeship modelling rather than thinking that large university structures are the only way to train technicians, artists, support crew, et cetera, that we need to look at how we embed the training in the everyday companies. And that's, again, a very traditional model of how you train an artist. And I think that if anything, and, and the way you and Laura were talking about it before, the way we can actually develop artists is by giving them certainty about some of their work opportunities. I'm, I'm trying to cast some touring shows at the moment, and it's so difficult because artists are going, well, I don't know where the next job's coming from and will I say yes to this or not to that. If we can actually support artists to First Nations artists, I actually think we can develop more careers of the stellar kind of qualities of Aaron Pedersen and Deborah Mailman and Leah Purcell and Wayne Blair if we actually engage with them in a not just a gig-by-gig gig way but actually think about the long arc of their training, a long arc of their development as an artist. Before we... Um bring Esther into the debate. Do you have any idea who will be on this overarching body? No, I have no idea at the moment, Philip. And I think that what we need to think of this body as being about, as we would say, cultural bosses, people who have cultural authority. And when, you know, you talk about some of those those old fellas and old women who have gone now, and you think about when they sat on these boards, they had authority because of their cultural background. And we need to make sure that's kept because it's not just about um, it. It's not just the colour of our skin. There is a cultural way of working that we need to make sure is solid. And though I love the Australia Council, or which will now be called Creative Australia, but this notion of 
how do we make sure that this is a cultural advance, not just a, well, an assimilationist advance? You'll make more theatre like white people. Now, let's uh, bring in Esther Antonelitis, but feel free to interrupt at any time, Wesley. <laughs> uh, welcome, my dear, to the conversation. The government Hello. Has, the government has created new bodies called Music Australia and Writers Australia. Are these the same thing as the, as the music board on the original Australia Council? No, they do sound quite different to me. And, and what, what really interests and excite me about this and the broader kind of reframing of um, Creative Australia is we're now going to see um, a government entity, a government agency who's charged with having a look across the entire art sector, the ecology, looking at what it really takes to support the interdependencies, the pathways, the whole ecology and not just what the Australia Council funds. And I am super intrigued and um, and really energised by what Wesley was just saying about, um, you know, that First Nations body and cultural authority because um, – I'm thinking of some great conversations I've had recently with um, the great Rachel Mazza and uh, Angela Flynn at Ilbidgeri Theatre and this notion of um, what they call our ways of working, so First Nations mm. ways of working and articulating that. So the new, the new cultural policy uh, also talks about uh, a national First Nations um, kind of, you know, uh, uh, workplace and employment strategy, mm. and that's about, um, you know, having Indigenous people in, in, in great work, but it's also about understanding um, beyond um, uh, cultural authority and, and the telling of, of stories, for example, what are First Nations' ways of working? How can they strengthen that sector and how can we all learn? So yeah, I'm. Um, this is uh, you know, writing writers Australia and Music Australia aren't just replicants of the art form boards. It's something far more comprehensive about education, about pathways, around all sorts of things. I should have said at the outset that this program is coming from Gadigal land. I always do, and tonight of all nights, I forgot. <laughs> I hope... And I'm here on the lands of the Bunurangu, <laughs> and the Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Wesley, I've forgotten something, but surely you'd like to comment on uh, what Esther's saying? Yeah, and I think it's interesting to look at how film film financing and film mm. investment has occurred in the last, let's call it a couple of decades, Philip, and you'd know this, wouldn't you? But this idea that there are some commercial elements, let's say in the contemporary music and especially in the publishing areas, which are often stepped outside of the Australia Council's remit mm. because of the kind of commerciality of it. But I love this idea that we have the, don't have those ideological blinkers in the same way. The, the danger will be that, you know, moving public, money into private profit. That's something to really, you know, guard against. But there's something about how sometimes the the commercial industry can actually help support long-term a career. And we've seen it in film a lot, how, you know, a funded environment turns into a commercial environment for certain First Nations filmmakers in particular. So I like the idea that Creative Australia will be looking at this mix of how things mm. will happen. 
Yeah, me too, Wesley. And I think it's kind of um, when we talk about for-profit and not-for-profit, uh, the difference between that is a not-for-profit company invests its profit right back into the workings of that organisation, whereas when we think about our generic corporations, um, profits often, you know, vanish into executives or board members or, or, or other investors. The thing about commerciality is that we're also talking about artists' livelihoods. We're mm. talking about what makes it possible to sustain a career in the arts. I mean, there's a, um, a great, there's a great, uh, I remember hearing uh, Dean Ormston from Cost say some time ago that the music sector is held together by gaffer tape. And gaffer tape is kind of, you know, it's pretty strong, but it's only designed for one use. But what we're seeing across a whole sector, whether it's contemporary music, whether it's literature, whether it's, you know, small to medium performing arts, whether it's visual arts, we're seeing artists and producers having to be very, very enterprising to get basic things done. Now, what if we could zoom out and all that learning contribute to the growth of entire sectors? That's what I'm seeing articulated in this policy. Is Well, back to you, Wesley. Let's talk about quotas. The big one, <laughs> which the sector has been yeah. waiting for, and we heard from uh, Tony Burke, that quotas will be introduced from mid-next year for Australian content on streaming services. But then you get into the problem of how is Australian content defined? Yeah. You look, you look, at, a film, issue, you look yeah. at a film like Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> and look, and lots of Australian artists and, and you know, people with high-vis jackets were getting work on that. I, I totally accept that. And, you know, the idea that... It's an Australian film because of it's filmed in this location by Australian artists. But there's something to be said about Australian stories as well. And I know, Philip, you've been part of this narrative for a very long time. If we don't see our stories reflected back to us, we then become this kind of hollowed out colonial kind of structure. We, you know, we yes. do need our own stories told to us. And, and I think that this, the thing about quotas is always this quality quantity kind of discussion that goes on, um, that people just want to kind of fill in the quantity number and go, yes, let's get to the 20% or whatever the number is now. And we get, you know, Love Island and some terrible kind of piece of uh, <laughs> rubbish that kind of gets pushed out there to fill the quota. But how do we actually make sure that our artists who are osmotically connected to our community are actually telling our stories? This is terribly important to me. This whole film mm. thing was kicked off with a one-page report I wrote to Gordon, which said it is time to hear our own voices, see our own landscapes and dream mm. our own dreams. Mm. And that's why I have some problems with Elvis. <laughs> well, and we can actually <laughs> lead the world in many debates and many discussions. I like it to say, as First Nations Australians, we're the oldest living culture in the world and we need to work, we need to walk on the, the global stage as elders, not as kind of juveniles. And mm. we often kind of just keep thinking of ourselves as unworthy, not ready. And I think that we need both the executives. And I think, you know, Netflix is a really good example of when you see Heartbreak High, where they go back in time, pick up something from the past and rejig it for us. And that has a global success, a global impact. You know, it can still be about us. In fact, in this kind of heavily globalized world, the specific, the nuance of the local is even more valued. And so we need to focus on that more, I think. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think we can have quotas and be uh, confident, ambitious, adventurous around Australian filmmakers, screenwriters, actors, composers. There are ways of writing these things in. I mean, for example, at the moment we give hundreds of millions of dollars of, of subsidy to foreign films that get shot here and Australian skylines get airbrushed away to create this generic international feel. And we mm. call it an international feel, but they're actually American cities, American productions, and, it, and that is a kind of colonisation. So if we're talking about quotas and about the support of streaming giants to invest in the local, then, yeah, there does need to be some nuance into how that's articulated. We need to advance, um, you know, the great skill, the intellectual property, uh, the achievements of Australian artists. Esther, there's been a push from arts organisations like Asia Link for better international engagement and that includes the promotion of Australian arts overseas, mm. but also collaboration opportunities with international artists. So should the arts be seen as a form of soft diplomacy? Well, I think so. And something that was a very little announcement in the cultural policy, which I don't think has been discussed much yet, is the return of the um, Asia-Pacific Arts Awards. And we think about, you know, what happens when we have awards like that, but also when we prize cultural exchange and engagement with our neighbours in the Pacific. If we look at the, the past 10 years where that has not been prized and these particular prizes have not happened, What's happened? We've lost our connection with our neighbours. We've stopped comfortably, confidently telling stories, exchanging those stories and experiences. We're now in a situation that many of us would have thought unthinkable where we have legitimate security concerns, you know, of a military nature across the Pacific. So we do need to take arts and culture very seriously. I love, I love, having, I love having brilliant guests. I really do. Wesley, <laughs> I'm going to sort of wind up with you a bit. The okay. first... Uh, well, the revived policy talks explicitly about the voice. In yeah. fact, the, uh, mm. the First Nations First Review panel said in their submission, First Nations arts and culture is the voice to the people and mm. a tool for truth-telling, as you've echoed. What are you hearing from your, uh, in, in your world about the voice? What are people saying to you? I think there's the fear of failure. I mean, to be honest, people are being very... Yeah. I talked to Stan Grant this afternoon and it's this kind of people holding themselves. I think we saw the same-sex marriage postal survey thing and mm -hmm. saw the damage that that did. And thank God it got through because there's a whole lot of damage that's going to uh, potentially be occurring in here. And when, when I've been talking to people, we say... Um, uh, oh, treaty first, or oh, no, we need truth telling before we need voice. And you go, actually, the voice is the mechanism through which everything can occur. I and think I think we'll wind on. it up on that uh, aspirational and inspirational point. And I have to thank you both enormously, Esther uh -huh. and. And it's Letus, the editor of that fine journal, Mianjin, and Wesley Enoch, playwright, artistic director and Indigenous chair in the creative industries with QUT. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.